I think I sent Ashley the wrong title on that. It's on me. It's, it'll be Act 17, starting in verse 32. Then it will go into Acts 18. And the title of the sermon is A Godly Mess We Must Get Into. We'll pray for the Spirit's guidance. Our Lord and our God, I just pray that, that you open your words of life to us, Heavenly Father. That you give us wisdom and guidance and assurance that your words are true. Give us ears to hear and give me the wisdom to proclaim your word accurately. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 17, starting in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius, Arapachatite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. You may be seated. We'll have more of the text, but I'll work it in with the sermon. We're continuing on here in the study of Acts. And remember, uh, as we go into Acts 18, I went back a little bit into Acts 17 because Paul did spend some time, a short time, in Athens. And he had the same pattern. He witnessed to the Jews... than whoever would listen in the marketplace. But also the leaders, the elite. You know, he shared the gospel with the shakers and the makers of the day. The ones that were so admired by the people. But you see, Paul, he didn't care who he witnessed to. He knew the gospel was for all people, all people. And it did have an effect. It did have an effect on some people. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You know, we understand that everywhere he goes, some will mock it. But others said, we'll hear you again. You know, some will think about it. And Paul left, but men joined him and believed among them who were Dionysius, the Arapagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So Paul did get converts in Athens. He stayed there a short time. And we've seen this time and time again. Paul will be faithful. He'll share the whole gospel. Some will mock. Some will believe. Some will think about it. And I think he stayed a short time in Athens because it doesn't seem like he had a great amount of success there. 
You know, that shouldn't surprise us because later on, what does he write in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.25? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You know, many times man's success in this world, perhaps it's men with gifted minds or good business minds, they become wealthy, or in this case in Athens, the philosophers who think they are the wise ones who are able to dictate to the world their philosophical philosophical views, they're harder to convince of their need of a Savior. They're harder to convince that they are sinners because unfortunately they use the good gifts that God had given them many times for themselves and many times for evil intent. But I think it was hard on Paul's heart. And was it that this was what he was thinking of, the Athenians, when he wrote this? I believe it would part. But we see it today. You know, in Washington, D.C. in particular, where you have the elite class thinking they know more, thinking they are the rulers of men. It's hard to find the believer among the politicians. It's sad, but it doesn't mean we must not witness to them. We're commanded to witness to all people. And even though we share the gospel, it's a great lesson that Paul gives us here. We can't sit there and keep beating a dead horse keep beating someone who refuses and refuses, we must move on. As Paul did, he moves on. He had more churches to, to start. He had more converts to convert. And <clears throat> it's just like us. We have to leave it in the Lord's hands. If we can plant, we can water, but the increase is of God, and we must completely understand that. It is not of us. It's not in our capabilities to save somebody. It's only by the working of the Holy Spirit. So after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. It's about 60 miles. Could have took them several days if they walked directly. I'm assuming it probably took them a little longer, probably preaching along the way. And these cities were similar in some ways, but they were contrasting in other ways. Again, it's important for us to bring in the history that we know about places so we know the audience that Paul was preaching to. Corinth was destroyed about 150 years before Paul arrived. However, the Romans rebuilt it, and they rebuilt it as a commercial hub. It'd be kind of like the Walmart distribution center. Goods would come in, goods would be sold out. 
a very wealthy trade center. People were working. They were producing. Wealthy like Athens, but compared to Athens, what, what are we told about the Athenians? And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Athens was more of a tourist town, and their wealth came from people coming to listen to these people just babble on. Where actually in Corinth, they produced, which brought great wealth to the city. And that was similar to Athens. Athens was a wealthy city. Corinth was a wealthy city. And in Corinth, they loved to demonstrate their wealth by their architecture. And we know that because you can still see these places. It's one of the most excavated cities in the old world. You can still see the columns, the buildings. You can go to the places that I'm going to mention in this sermon. The synagogue, the house next to the synagogue. The place of judgment, they're still there. And I know from my building experience, you know, there were different types of columns. There was a Doric, that was a plain column built, not much carving on it. Then the Iconic, which had the scrolls on it, a little fancier. And then the Corinthian columns, or the Corinth columns. And those, they had scrolls, they had lattice work, they had letters. Beautiful. They demonstrated their wealth. But along with this wealth, and because it was a commercial center, people coming and going, there was also great vice. A lot of sexual sins, a lot of drinking, a lot of idolatry. And for us, the lesson is, Paul was preaching in a culture that was far worse than ours. Far more hostile environment. People loved their sin, and people didn't were not judged for the sin, it was accepted sin. So when Paul would come in and preach against sin, it was a lot hostile, more hostile than what we have. Yet, churches were formed, the power of God worked. It's amazing. When it's done according to God's prescribed method, no matter what the culture, no matter what the situation, the gospel message works. Because our God is working before us, behind us, around us, preparing the hearts and souls of men, preparing fellow workers. And we see that here. In verse 3, 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So God was preparing people in Corinth even before Paul got there. Again, we're going to touch on a little bit of history. And why you may ask why I touch on history because the Bible is the greatest historical book, the most accurate that ever is. It's not comprehensive, but when it talks about history, it is accurate. So if I bring in history from outside the Bible, it gives validity to the Scriptures. And we know from the writings of Stonius, who recorded that in 52 AD, Claudius ordered all the Jews out of Rome. And why? 
because they were turning the city upside down. He got sick of dealing with the Christians, is what was written. Because it was upsetting the Jewish, the Jews, and they could see it was taking power away from Rome. So he just ordered them, get out of here. So we have to assume that that Aquila and Priscilla were from Rome and left when this order was given. But just think about that. How God was using people forced out of their comfortable situation, their comfortable hometown, into a different land so that God could use them to work with another believer who would be coming there soon. Our God is always in control. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. When we meet fellow believers, it is part of God's plan. So again, verse 2, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And this is recorded with other historians as well. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Here again, when we do a little research, we get a little insight into Jewish life at that time, at the time when Paul was a youth. Now remember, Paul was a gifted man, and they saw it from young on. He was taught by some of the best teachers, the best Jewish scholars that lived. And that was from a young age. They feel that he was probably under their apprenticeship, their care, when he was 10 or 12 years old. Where they were preparing him to be a Pharisee. So how did he learn to be a tent maker? He was taught to be a tent maker before he was 10 years old. Either his father taught him to be a tent maker or he commissioned others to teach Paul a trade. There was a saying among the Jews that if you do not teach your son a trade, you have taught him to be a thief. Just think about that. Wouldn't that be great today if the culture taught that? Teach your young men a trade when they're young. Teach them that work is good, that it's responsible, something that they can use their whole life no matter what the circumstances. Tent making was a lucrative trade. It was a necessary trade. It was something that he could always fall back on. Teach them when they're young and they, the basics, when they're young, they will remember it their whole life. If you don't teach your son a trade, you have taught him to be a thief. Again, that would work great today. How many businesses are looking for young men who will take and work 
make a career out of a job. We work with their hands. The Apostle Paul was educated in many areas of life, and one was a trade to fall back on. But Paul, now, he was making tents and preaching the gospel. He's taking time for, be, for both. He had that balance. And later on, he would write, he was a burden to nobody. He didn't ask them to meet his needs. But here, God surely had people meet his needs. He stayed with these people. They prepared a place, and Paul stayed with them, like-minded. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Again, we see the normal pattern of Paul as he goes to these different cities. Go to the synagogue first, to the Jews and the converted Greeks, and give them the gospel message. Teach them that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, there's nothing wrong with making plans on how you will attempt to start churches, expand your church, meet the needs of your people, as long as you follow biblical principles. It's good to make plans. And here, Paul, he's using the same pattern, same strategy, and churches were started, but it wasn't so good for him at times because we know he was getting beat up, stoned. It brought him a lot of misery. But he refused to change tactics. He understood that the Christian life is difficult at best. The Lord tells us we will have trouble in this world. And I'll guarantee it. If you are a Christian and you keep to yourself, think that it's piety not to share the gospel, for the most part, people will ignore you. But when you take that Christianity into the world, into their lives, telling them that God commands them to repent, it will bring difficulties. People will start using adjectives against you that you do not care to be called. But it is godly. It is godly. It's an offense to those who are perishing, but the power of life to those who are to be saved. And that will never change. That will never change. So when Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. You know, Paul, again, he had a plan and he stuck to it. To the Jews, he just had to tell them, you know, Jesus is the Messiah. They understood that God created them. He didn't have to go into creation, that God created you and owns you. He just had to prove to them through the Old Testament 
It all pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul was a master scholar. He could do it masterfully. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. These Jews seemed even more critical of Paul than others. They really got under his skin, really reviled him, rejected him. So Paul rebukes him, but he rebukes him verbally and he rebukes him visually. He shakes his garment, shakes the sin off of his garment from him. No, that shouldn't surprise us. We've seen that when Jesus told his disciples, if a town rejects you, shake the dust off your feet. Had some of these prophets, they had to run around naked, marry a prostitute. It was visual pictures for people to give them a double witness. And I'm sure this saddened Paul. He loved the Jews. He loved the Jewish people so much Each time he went into a synagogue, he knew he could be beaten or stoned. But he kept going. He kept doing it. But also he knew he had to proclaim the whole gospel of God. He had to share it with them. It was his duty, his responsibility. And in Acts 20, 25 to 27, he says, And now behold, I know that none of your young None of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. These are powerful words. What he's implying is if somebody does not proclaim the whole counsel of God, they are not innocent. They have not shared the biblical plan for salvation and they have robbed people of the opportunity to repent and to be saved. So it really gets under my skin when people tell me, Just share the love of Jesus. Don't ever mention the law. They actually did a study to try to find a different word than repentance because they felt it was too offensive to use. They couldn't find one. But Paul, he went. He went to the Gentiles. He tells them that from now on I will go to the Gentiles And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Here again, we see Paul does not hesitate to preach to the leaders the ruling officials. He's preaching to the leaders of these synagogues who are the ones who would, if they had the chance, if they hated him, call for him to be stoned, whipped, kicked, or whatever. Yet he shares the gospel to them and to others. And many 
believed. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed. It was the power of God. No one can withstand God. If God wants to change their heart, He will change their heart. He will prepare their heart. No one can withstand the power of God. Paul shared the gospel with Crispus. Like Nicodemus, the other ruler who was converted, he came and became a follower of Jesus Christ along with his household. Again, as soon as Paul starts having success, I'm sure it's in the back of his mind, okay, What type of beating am I going to get here now because now these people are losing their converts. It seems to go south when that happens. But Paul was bold. He was brave. He did not back off from his responsibility. But he was human. I'm sure he had concerns. I'm sure he was afraid. I mean, who likes being called names all the time? Who likes being beaten for sharing the gospel? I know people in the pro-life movement, we go out. People say a lot of bad things about you in a day when you're out there standing up for life. It's hard, but it's necessary. And Paul understood why God was going to use him and what he was going through. Because if we look at Acts 9, remember Ananias? That's the guy who went and talked to Paul when he was blind. Ananias in verse 16, or Acts 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I'm sure Ananias passed that on to Paul. But here in Corinth, the Lord wanted Paul to have a little respite. He wanted him to have a little peace. In verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. Again, God always has others in the wings to come around you. There's other believers out there. We're never alone. He has his church universal or Catholic church. And he brings those saints together at times. And here Paul gets a little respite. So the door was left wide open by the Lord for Paul to continue his work there. And he stayed a year and a half. However, things change. New power came in. A new proconsul. Remember, this area was under Roman rule. So they had a Roman governor, a proconsul. And in this time, while he's in Corinth, a new one was installed. 
And the wicked Jews thought, well, we're going to test this guy. We'll see if we can't get this new proconsul to do our dirty work. But when Gallio was proconsul in Archaea, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So again, just like Jesus, the Jews wanted the Romans to do their dirty work. How did it work out for them? You know, the Jews could keep their own religion. That was part of the Roman rule over them. You kiss the ring of Caesar, you can do your religion under that. We won't bother you. We won't have any part of it. But they wanted this Gallio to be their executioner or their thug. Because remember, when, uh, when you wanted to silence somebody or censor somebody in those days, I mean, you didn't take them off Facebook. You usually took their heads off. It was more permanent. So what do we know about this Gallio from history? Well, we do know stuff about him. He was a moral man. Wasn't a believer, but a moral man. God's laws are written on our hearts, even the pagans, and this guy was a good guy. And you might know him better through his brother Seneca, who was a writer of many books. He studied yet today. And he was a moralist as well. Good men. And they would follow the laws that they were under. But again, we see God at work here. God at work here. But when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words, and names of your own law. See to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Gallio said no dice. This is a religious matter. And I'm not going to take the bait. You're free to do your religious things. Decide it yourself. I'm not going to stick my nose into it. It's out of my jurisdiction. Now this may not seem like a big deal, but this is huge. Because what Gallio is saying is that Christianity is now part of the Jewish religion that's protected under Rome, Roman rule. It's like the the Supreme Court making a precedent that where Paul goes from now on, the Romans are not going to punish Paul for what he says about Christianity if it hacks off the Jews. We We see God's hand in this. But also, now remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. So in order for Paul to be tried or beaten, he had to be judged by the Romans. 
So now these Jewish leaders could not take Paul and just pounce on him and beat him up like they were doing in the past. And this gave Paul about 10 years more of a more easy ministry, a protected ministry. God's hand was in this. God's hand was in this. You know, there's Gallio and Seneca. They were moralists to the heart because when Nero was in, took over the Roman Empire, they criticized him. And they had them, both these guys killed. Nero is the same one who killed the Apostle Paul. But this really hacked the Jews off. They were forbidden to beat Paul. And the wicked don't rest unless they do something wicked. So what are they going to do? They took their rage out on another. They all seized Sothenius, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Here again, they're testing this Gallio. He said, leave it to yourself. I'm not even going to get involved. So another ruler of the synagogue, perhaps they felt he was, uh, gave Paul too much of an audience or leaning toward Christianity. So they pounced on him. But remember, even in Jewish law, they had certain rules that they were to follow, but they don't follow them here. They just grabbed this guy, beat the snot out of him right in front of this uh, Gallio. And Gallio just ignored him. The Jews were testing to see if they could beat up people changing the Christianity among their own people that aren't Roman citizens. And unfortunately, Gallio would let them go and do it. And I think they beat up this Sothenius, because in 1 Corinthians 1.1 we read, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenius. I believe it was the same guy. We don't know for sure. But why else would they just grab him and beat him? But again, what we see, the gospel is preached it is, as it is meant to be preached. God the creator, so we're accountable to God. He has the right to tell us what to do. We sin. We need to repent. We have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And our God reigns by raising him up from the dead. And our God reigns now. And it's evidence evidence of the validity of Jesus Christ. That is when the door is open for the gospel to be effective and the church expands and it influences the culture. When it's preached in its perfection, as perfect as we can, but according to the apostolic teachings,
And it works. And we know it works. We have letters to the Corinthian churches. We have letters to them. These churches were started by the apostles. And again, they were influenced directly by the Holy Spirit. They could do miracles. But what they did is they taught other men. And they set up the church that we call the regular ministry. Elders, deacons, who would oversee the church. It wasn't by the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit in the charismatic way that the apostles had it. Yes, the Holy Spirit does influence and burden us. But now we had the regular ministry of the church. Meaning the church was to run according to what the apostolic teachings were. Go back to the teachings. If you have a problem in a church, go back to Acts and see what was taught to the early church. A pattern that was to be used and passed on throughout church history even today. That is our pattern. It is to be run according to the apostolic teachings. So you would think, as close to the apostolic teachings that the Corinthian churches were, that if you were to visit those churches, they'd all be sitting around singing kumbaya with no problems. Yet what do we read when we read the letters to the Corinthians? We see sin, bickering, challenging to authority, sexual sin. Paul has to go down and set them straight. In short, what we see is difficulty in the church. Difficulty in the church. What a shock, huh? Expect it. It's made up of sinners. Made up of sinful men. And as long as we are here on this earth, there will be difficulties in the church. As a matter of fact, I would say that is the sign of a true church. A faithful church that will have discipline and confront the evils that come in, the heresies, and they will come in. We are warned of it. If you find a church where there are no battles, where everybody gets along, I'll bet my bottom dollar you'll find a church that is apostate and accepting everybody. I see signs now as I drive around on church buildings. We do church a new way. And usually what that means is we have a new way of convincing people how to accept the sins into the church that are forbidden by God. We don't need a new way to do church. We have a way to do church. It's the apostolic way that we were taught. 
You know, it tells us in 2 Peter 2.2, 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Peter's making it clear. There will be struggles and fights going on in the church, and many of it will be because of sensuality, because of the sexual misuse of God's gifts. Expect it. I don't know how many times I've heard people, I'm leaving that church because they're always criticizing this, this and that, or disciplining. The church is supposed to have unity and love one another. Again, they're taking unity and love and using it that it trumps everything else. There will be difficulties. There will be trials. Because the church is continually maturing. And it can be carried too far where churches become pharisaical. Everybody has to walk like a duck, act like a duck, dress like a duck. Church is called to find that balance where there are many freedoms in Christ, but we cannot and must not let sin enter the church without discipline and eradicating it. Right now in our own synod, we have a church that denies the atoning work of Jesus Christ, that it's not necessary. Now, if we were just looking for unity, we'd just go, oh, well, you know, that's the way it is. But it's unbiblical, it's false, it must be confronted. Saints, we have been given the task to carry the church right now in history here by God. And trust me, there will be difficulties, there will be trials. There will be church discipline. And what we have to do, we have to be like the Bereans to make sure that we are in check with God's word in each step of that. And all is looking for restoration and peace and love with our brothers. But there are times when heresies come in and they must be weeded out. And you should be thankful that we're in a classis that is known for raising up red flags and saying, thus says the Lord. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, you have brought us to here, this point, this church, our lives, in this time of history for one purpose, to please you, to live godly lives with our neighbors, our friends, and our families, but also to share your kingdom with others. And expect that some will hate you, but God will love you when we're faithful. And I just pray that God uses us to be a light and a beacon into this ever-darkening world that we see here. 
We ask this through Jesus' name. 